0: over, they exchanged the knowledge of God, knowing God, for foolishness. So they wanted God out of their thinking. Folks, it's so dangerous to to want God out of your thinking. And it's such a blessing to have God in your thinking. Matter of fact, Psalms 1 says, the more you think about God throughout the day, the more you're blessed. That's the promise of God. But see, a rebellious, sinful, uh, reprobate culture doesn't want God in their thinking. So what does God do? He turned them over to a debased mind. Now I shared with you last time that I, I personally believe this is where we are. We've had the first two turning overs, the sexual revolution where we threw out the Judeo-Christian ethic and if you can't be with the one you love then love the one you're with as the old stupid hippie song said and all kind of bet hopping started And there's no more wait till marriage, no more purity, no more morality. That's just old-fashioned, traditional, churchy stuff, and you need to get free. Fact is, it's not freedom at all. It leads to bondage. Y'all are real somber tonight. Now, But the turning over to a debased mind is this. A debased mind is a mind that can no longer judge between right and wrong. A debased mind, reprobate mind, is a mind that no longer can discern truth from error. It is the reprobate mind that calls good evil and evil good, light dark and dark light, wrong right and right wrong, sweet for bitter and bitter for sweet, the debased mind is really an upside-down mind. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I'm telling you, for me, every day in our culture, I feel like I'm in an upside-down world. I'm watching right called wrong, and I'm watching wrong rewarded as right. I'm watching what is immoral declared moral, and what is moral declared to be immoral. Immoral. I'm watching people say that's right when my Bible says it's totally wrong and I'm seeing our culture call what the Bible says wrong right and if you don't go along with it you are a right-wing hateful bigoted person who has not yet been illuminated but let me tell you it's the opposite we're not evolving in America morally for instance to a better place we're devolving into the abyss according to the Word of God. And that's not hateful to say. It's the truth according to Scripture. Now, after focusing in chapter 1 on the gross and flagrant sins of the openly ungodly, God turns His attention to respectable sinners, (laughs) churchy people, church folk, religious people, respectable sinners who, thinking themselves better than others, fall into the same sins as those they pretend to despise. Uh Uh-oh. So who are we talking about here? The hypocrite. You got the hippopotamus and you got the hypocrite. All hypocrites, regardless of race or religion, culture or creed, both Jews and Gentiles are in the crosshairs of God's judgment. Now this is what Romans 2.1 is going to tell us. Let's read it together. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Uh Uh-oh. So here's the person that's pointing that long judgmental finger, but there's four of them pointing back at them. He says, woe to you if you're judging others, when you're doing the very same thing. So is he saying we shouldn't judge? No. It's false. It's a false teaching that's also out there and part of the tolerance message that you really shouldn't judge anybody. Nobody has a right to judge anybody. Yes, we do. Jesus talked about righteous judgment and he talked about wrong judgment. The wrong judgment is when you judge somebody when you're doing the same thing. But if you're clean, you can judge sin as sin and should and better. Now we know that God's judgment, he goes on to say, against those who do such things is based on truth. Abraham said, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So when it comes to judgment, God judges according to truth. God never wrongly judges erroneously, judges. When God judges, it's based on truth. He judges based on what is true. And so he says, God's judgment is just. When God judges a person or a nation, a society, when he finally lets it go and judges that nation or person, it's according to truth. It's righteous judgment. Now here Paul is addressing the Jews And here was their attitude. They approved of God's judgment on the Gentile world, the pagan world. They would watch the Gentiles get judged and they would say, go God. Amen. They should have been judged. But now, unlike the Gentiles described in chapter one, verse 32, who not only continue, now watch, what did the people, the the Gentiles in chapter one of Romans do? Not only continue to do the very things that is mentioned that are mentioned in that chapter as being sinful, but they also approve of those who do them and cheer them on. And while the Jews, who were very self-righteous, as they would watch the, uh, these Gentiles being judged by God, they would say, they had it coming. Now Paul is turning to the Jew and saying, wait a minute. You say they had it coming, but you do the same things. In doing so, they revealed a knowledge of God, the Jews did, because if, if they could amen God's judgment, then they had to have a knowledge of what God liked and didn't like. So they're amening the judgment on the Gentiles, revealed a knowledge of God and an awareness of sin and an acknowledgement of His right to judge sin. The Jews had that. They had the Word The Jews assumed that their approval of God's judgment upon the pagan world proved that they themselves were right with God. Remember that guy praying, the two men praying in Jesus' parable? One had his face to the ground saying, Have mercy on me, a sinner. And the other one with his nose up in the air saying, I thank God I'm not like Him. Holier than thou. Nose in the air. Better than you. Paul is saying, to the church at large. Watch out for that attitude. Watch out that you don't go there. This should have been true, but it was not. The Jews were practicing the very things they judged in others. And I just lost my clicker. Oh, it jumps ahead sometimes. Amen. Now, so in you, now look what he says in verse 3, so in you, a mere man, passed judgment on them, and yet you're doing the same things, do you think that you're going to escape the judgment of God? You saw them get judged, that ought to scare the fire out of you. Because he's saying to them now, he's saying, my dear Jewish brethren, and I'm one of you, said Paul, do you think that you passing an amen on their judgment yet you're doing the same things. You think that judgment is not headed your way? You think that dark cloud of God's wrath is not going to hover over you and His judgments fall on you in the same way? In other words, you're not special. God is no respecter of persons. That's why I say America's not special to God. I love America. I thank God for America. But if God judges his own people, where does that leave us? God is not a patriot. God loves holiness. Okay? So we could easily step into Paul's shoes and, and and take what he's saying to the Jews as being said to us. America is not special. If God judged other nations and other peoples, even his own peoples, then do you think you will escape America? God's judgment? No way. Listen, if God doesn't judge America, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Because we have surpassed them. Well, Pastor Jeff, why don't you preach me up tonight? I'm just telling you the truth. See, I'm tired of all this, uh, you know, powder puff Christianity. I want to tell you the truth. Here's the truth we need to pray. We really need to pray. Now, Paul is charging that by passing judgment on the Gentiles, the Jews were condemning themselves because they were doing the very same things. Judging in others what we ourselves practice invites the judgment of God. Remember when Jesus said, before you operate in somebody else's eye, you better remove the two by four out of your own eye. Remove the the speck out of your own eye, the log out of your own eye before you try to get the speck out of your brother's eye. He's saying, how can you operate on somebody else's eye when your own eye is blind? It's the same idea. When you do what these Jews were doing, you treat with contempt the great kindness and patience of God. Watch this. Paul says, so when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them, and yet you do the same things, you think you're going to escape God's judgment, or do you show contempt? for the riches of his kindness tolerance and patience not realizing that god's kindness leads you to repentance now that verse reveals why so often somebody who decides to go off into sin that verse realize, shows us why they sometimes come to believe god is okay with their sin because god's kindness towards them continues for a season And they take it as his approval of what they're doing. But it's not. He is hoping to win them to repentance by his kindness. So the lightning doesn't strike immediately. The clouds don't thunder immediately. There is a season of time where it looks like nothing is happening for what you're doing. And you come into deception going, well, all of that stuff about sin was a bunch of bunk. I'm getting away with it. I'm doing it and nothing's happening to me. No, sir. No, ma'am. It's God's kindness, hoping that you'll turn before He's got to get rougher with you. Now, here we have key insight into the hypocrite. The sin of the hypocrite is that of being indignant at other people's shortcomings while being indulgent of His own. Oh, gosh. They shouldn't be doing that, those nasty, wretched sinners. And yet, you yourself are walking in indulgent sin. That's hypocrisy. The hypocrite bashes others for the very things he allows. He finger points when four of his own fingers are pointing back at him, as we said a moment ago. This is not saying, as I've already said as well, that we should not judge sin. We better judge sin, church. And don't be afraid to judge sin. And call sin, sin. It's saying that we should not harshly judge others for sins that thrive in our own backyard. We should get our own life clean. That's why we need a clean church. You know what, church? That's why we need clean hands. Because how can we really preach to a culture that is going down the drain, that sin is killing them, if there's sin in our own backyard? Amen, I'm not saying we've got to be perfect, but we do need to be sincere and and get and, and be as clean as we can be, growing in God, we need to be not perfect but sincere. The essence of hypocrisy is to allow in ourselves what we condemn in others. so who are you condemning tonight? Who do you really cut loose on what you know what sin is it that just raises your ire and just makes you rant and rave. I can think of a couple of things. Now, the things that really anger me, as much as I know they are not in my life. I am hurting over our country. And the things that I see taking our country down, God help me. I don't don't see the same things dwelling in me Though I'm not perfect and I need all the help and all the grace I can get every single day. But I'm convinced enough about what is taking our country down that I feel confident to speak against it. And I'm not afraid to say, wrong is wrong. I don't care what you say. The Bible is my text. Amen? Now, the word hypocrite comes from a word meaning to act a part as on a stage. The hypocrite is a play actor. He puts on a show for the benefit of other people, but he never gets away with it, never with God. And the hypocrites, you know, they're in every church. And the people that say, well, I'm not going to go to that church because of all the hypocrites, they're being a hypocrite right then. And I say to them, well, if you're bugged with all the hypocrites and you're so right, come and help us all, all of us hypocrites and come back to church. We need you. But the person who says, well, I'm not going to go to church because there's hypocrites, is being hypocritical in and of himself because the Bible says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. But now, hypocrites are everywhere. Everywhere. And look what he says in verse 2. We know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. No other person came under a more scathing indictment from the Lord Jesus than the hypocrite. You know that 15 times in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus rebukes hypocrites. And boy, did he. You whitewashed tomb. You hypocrite. These people that say Jesus was just love and just tiptoed through the tulips and never bothered anybody, and why can't we be more loving like him? Let me tell you something. There are people who would faint if they encountered the real Jesus because Jesus stood right in front of these people, and he would be scathing. You hypocrite. You whitewashed tomb. You're full of dead men's bones. How can you ever escape the judgment of hell? I mean, Jesus wouldn't be welcome in three quarters of American churches. The real Jesus, not the Americanized Jesus, not the made-up Jesus, not the Jesus we wish were there, but the real Jesus. He was, oh yeah, gentle as a lamb, but with hypocrites, oh, he was red hot. He, as a matter of fact, can I tell you tonight, he was a hellfire and brimstone preacher. Do you know that Jesus preached more about hell than anybody in the Bible? What do we do with the real Jesus? Love him and get right with him. Now, the hypocrite forgets the times God's goodness was extended to him. Now think about that. That's what the hypocrite does. He's been forgiven. He's like the elder brother in Jesus' story, the prodigal son. I've often wondered, is the story more about the prodigal or that elder brother at the end? Because the prodigal comes back from all of his sin and shame. The father forgives him, wraps him in his arms, gives him a ring on his finger, shoes on his feet, a robe to put on, rejoices over his return, and the elder brother is sitting outside stewing and seething and saying he spent all his money on prostitutes and prodigal living and now you kill a fatted calf for him and I've been with you all this time and you've never killed a fatted calf for me. And he didn't forgive him. He wouldn't come into the party. He wouldn't embrace his little brother. He didn't rejoice with him. That's who the hypocrite is. The elder brother was in the father's house, but he wasn't of the father. He didn't have the father's heart. He didn't understand the Father. He wasn't like the Father. So you can be in the house of God and be untouched by the God of the house. You can be there your whole life and never get it. Isn't that something? So the hypocrite forgets like the elder brother did. The father said to this elder brother, he said, Haven't I always been with you? Haven't I given you everything you wanted? Haven't I always blessed you? Aren't you an equal inheritor of everything that I've got? Everything I have is yours. What's the matter with you? What are you talking about? See, the elder brother had forgotten all the father's goodness. And that's what hypocrites do. That's what really judgmental people do. They forget how they've been forgiven. How many of you can say, he saved me out of a pigsty? Amen? Now, you need to always keep that in mind because we need to be merciful to people. Now, he says in verse 4, Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you to repentance? The hypocrite's memory is short when remembering all the times God had mercy on them in order to produce repentance. This is the essence of the hypocrisy of many religious folks who turn their nose up at the addicted, the crushed, the broken and the broke. They forget that God once also delivered them from the pit. Now, Paul continues in his indictment of the hypocrite, telling them what they face. Verse 5 But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up. Now, are these strong words, church? Let them really sink in. You are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. Now the phrase, storing up wrath, is very telling. It pictures the sinner storing away day by day, sort of making an investment in the bank of wrath. Every day he goes by the teller uh, or the little um, deposit area and he makes a deposit in the bank of wrath. That's what he's doing a fresh deposit of wickedness for judgment on a coming day. It's like making a fresh daily deposit in the savings account of coming judgment against yourself. Now, next, Paul describes the judgment of the hypocrite. First, we see that the hypocrite is judged according to his works. Now, look what he says. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. Verse 8, but for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and there will be anger. Do you catch that? Now, how do some people come along and say, there's no judgment, there's no hell, there's no afterlife to worry about, everybody's gonna go to heaven. Is that what these verses are telling us? Come on, church. No. No. It says that God is a God of love, but he's also a God of judgment. Look what he says. Verse 9, there's going to be trouble on some people and distress for every human being who does evil. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile, first for the Jew, because the Jew are the recipients of the word. Verse 10, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Now, I know what you're thinking. This is one of the most difficult passages in Romans because it gives the impression when you read it that salvation is earned by works because he uses the word, look at it now, for everyone who does good. So it sounds like you've got somebody here earning salvation or not being saved because they didn't do the right thing. But we must bear in mind that this passage is dealing with the basis of God's judgment. In the Bible, judgment is executed due to our works. Salvation is by faith. If you have turned to Jesus Christ by faith, you're no longer living by works. You're living by His work. And so it's not due, it's done. When you turn to Jesus Christ... You're no longer performing, jumping through hoops, having to earn any kind of favor with God because God is imputing to you the perfect life of Jesus Christ. So God looks at you and me and says, righteous, 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 righteous. All right? So when a person persists in in doing good and is seeking for glory, honor, incorruption, and eternal life in well-doing... Here's what it reveals. It reveals that person has been saved. You're not saved by works, but works prove you have been saved. Now, let me say that again. Y'all are lethargic tonight. I need you to pep up. I know it's hot out there. But listen carefully to me. Watch this. We aren't saved for works. I mean, we are saved for works. We aren't saved by works. But we are saved for works. We were saved for works that were ordained for you and me before the world began. So what he's talking about and who he's talking to, the one who is wanting to do good and live a good life and seek God and serve God and please God, shows that he or she has been saved. You know, you tell me you've got Jesus in your life, I will see it it'll show. Now, you're not going to be perfect, and there's a lot of things you're going to have to get worked out, but salvation tells on you. Salvation shows, just like when you're lost. It doesn't take long to figure it out, being around somebody lost. When you're with somebody saved, it shows. Your life is changed. Jesus makes a difference. If any man be in Christ, he is a whole new creation. The old is passed away, and all is become new. It makes a difference. It changes you, all right? So that's who he's talking about. In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, James said, is dead. But somebody says, well, you have faith and I have deeds. James says, show me your faith without deeds and I'll show you my faith by what I do, by how I live, by my spiritual growth. Saving faith is persevering faith. It moves the redeemed to persevere in doing good. How many of you can say, since Jesus came into my life, I'm living a life I never thought I would live? Amen? You bet. You bet. And for the person of faith, the perfect, righteous life of Jesus Christ has already instantly been imputed or credited to his account at the moment of salvation. Boy, I love that truth. Look what 2 Corinthians 5.21 says. Let's read it out loud together. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Tell your neighbor, you're righteous in God. Can we give the Lord a hand of praise for that? Isn't that good news? Amen. Romans 4, verse 8 says, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute credit to his account his sin. Oh, that person is blessed. The wicked person or the hypocrite is going to be judged by his deeds, not by his faith. His deeds will be credited, or better put, debited to his account. As that old song says, and I used to sing it all the time, he paid a debt he did not owe. But where were we? We owed a debt we could not pay. Well, what to do? We needed somebody to wash our sins away. But now we sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace. Why? Because Christ Jesus paid the debt that I could never pay. Amen. When the blood of Christ was shed, praise God, it canceled out all the charges against us. Paul said, when you were stuck in your old sin-dead life, you were incapable of responding to God. But God brought you alive, right along with Jesus Christ. Think of it, says Paul, all sins forgiven, the slate wiped clean, that old arrest warrant canceled, and nailed to Christ's cross." Did you know you had a warrant for your arrest? God was out to get you. And, and, and if you had died without Christ, you would have been brought before the judge, and the arrest warrant would have been served. But when you came to Jesus Christ, the arrest warrant was torn up and burned in the fire, and there's no more arrest warrant for you, but now you've been declared righteous. Isn't that good news? Yes! Paul continues he stripped all the spiritual tyrants in the universe talking about the devil of their sham authority at the cross and marched them naked through the streets the devil was humiliated defeated ashamed and ruined by the blood of Jesus now when we place our faith in the finished work of Christ two things happen immediately first of all the sin debt is totally canceled the charges legitimately leveled against us by Satan, have to be dropped. Second, the perfect righteous life of Christ is imputed to you, placed in your spiritual bank account. Let me just put it real simply. You're rich. You are rich. Let me tell you how rich you are. There will be billionaires at the judgment that would give anything for what you have. You're rich. What's the richness? Your sin debt is canceled. The arrest warrant against you is dropped. And the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to your bank account. You're going to face God and he's going to look at you and see Jesus. And there's billionaires. They would give anything to have that and they won't have it. But the hypocrite, the sinner who's living by works, will be judged according to their works. And at the judgment, it will not matter who you are, how much money you had, how famous you were, or how many good works in your eyes you performed. If you have not placed your faith in the shed blood of Christ, your spiritual bank account will prove to be in bankruptcy. You are yet in your sins. And I say to you tonight, and anybody listening by radio, You may have millions of dollars, a good name, stuff, material things, a great house, a great car, but if you don't have Jesus, you are yet in your sins, and you will die in your sins, and you will face God for your sins, and you will answer for your sins, and you will be judged for your sins. Why not get your bank account truly rich? the riches of God in Christ Jesus. And let him forgive you of your sin and come into your heart and change your life. What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? But what sh- or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? There is nothing more valuable than your soul. Has your soul been saved? Is it under the blood? Have you turned to Christ? Have you repented? Is the Spirit of God living in you? If not, quickly get right with God while you can. God will judge accordingly, Paul writes, without showing special favor to anybody. He says in chapter 2, verse 11, God does not show favoritism. Paul next talks about those who have experienced a level of God's light. He's talking about the Jews. Now, this is crucial. This is going to answer some questions for some of you who are always saying, Well, what about those people over in far off Africa who have never heard the gospel? How can God possibly judge them? Let's read verse 12. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. He's talking about two people here. Pagan Gentiles who are totally ignorant of the law that God gave to the Jewish people, the Ten Commandments and the Word of God. He's talking about them, and then he's talking about the Jewish people who had the law but did not turn to Christ, that they would be judged by that very law. Verse 13, for it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, But it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. But here's the problem there. Nobody can obey it. Nobody can do it. Nobody can live the commandments without sinning. Everybody has lied, taken God's name in vain. If you've done it once, you've broken them all. So in verse 13, Paul is turning the screw. He's saying, you Jewish people, you say that the law is going to save you. It's never going to save you unless you have perfectly obeyed it. And they knew they had not perfectly obeyed it. Those who have the Word of God have much more light than those who don't know the Word of God. The possession of an open Bible greatly increases our ability to know God's will. But light is light regardless of how dim or how bright it might happen to be. Now listen carefully. If a person were lost in a dark cave, the least glimmer of light would draw him toward that light. If you're lost in a dark cave and you want out and you see a faint light over yonder, you are going to begin to make your way towards that light with everything in you because you want freedom. If that person desired deliverance genuinely from the darkness, he would move toward the light with joy. But if he had some guilt... To hide, he would not respond to the light except to hide or flee from it regardless of its dimness or brilliance. He would avoid the light if he felt that at that light he was going to be judged. This is why Jesus said, and judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people loved. What did they do, everybody? Loved. Read it with me. They loved the darkness more than the light for their actions were evil so you as a Christian walk into a room a bunch of lost people and you say praise the Lord I'm a Christian light shines they all see it and how come they don't all run towards you because they love the darkness more than the light if they wanted to be free they would come straight to you and say what do you mean praise the Lord tell me how you got this peace Verse 20, all who do evil, said Jesus, hate. What do they do? Hate the light. And they refuse to go near it for fear of what? Everyone read it with me good and loud. For fear their sins will be exposed. So they avoid the light and they avoid people of the light. And why do you think our culture is getting God out of the schools, God out of the public place, God out of graduations, God out of athletics, God out of everywhere? Why are they pushing it down, suppressing it, Uh, persecuting it, condemning it, mocking it. Why? They love the darkness more than the light and they refuse to go near it for fear that what they're doing will be exposed as sin. Verse 21, said Jesus, but those who do what is right come to the light. We come to church because there's light there, don't we? We come to the light so others can see that they are doing what God wants. There's two kinds of people, those that run to the light and those that run from the light. If you really want to be free, the slightest glimmer of the dimmest light will pull you toward it. Now, Paul says that doom awaits all who reject the light. Church, please understand that. If you say, I don't want that light, The light is Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. You say you don't want it. Our culture says it. Doom, Paul says, awaits those who reject the light. But for those who have had a greater advantage, there's less excuse and greater guilt. Now what the Gentiles had, those pagans over in Africa, or hey, in America, what the Gentiles had was not in written form. He's talking about those that never had the law, never had the Word, never seen a Bible. But they did have a light. And what was it? Their conscience. It may not have been as clearly spelled out as what the Jews have been given by Moses, <laughs> Moses' Ten Commandments, but they did have the basic moral concepts of God written and etched into their consciousness by God. Very many, many different cultures and societies of history have been studied, and it has been found by those who studied many different societies and cultures that no matter where they were, what color their skin was, they all had a moral code. Now I ask you, where did they get, having never heard the Word of God, never been preached to, where did they get a moral code? God wrote it in their conscience. I was talking to an agnostic one time, agnostic lady. Oh, she was angry at Christians, didn't want to talk about it. But I said to her, and it totally disarmed her when I said this I said, because I happen to know about her life, and you know, her life, it's funny. She didn't want anything to do with Christianity, nothing to do with Christ, but she was a very moral person. And so I said to her, I said, then let me ask you, where did you get your moral code if you believe there's no God? Where did you get the morals you live by? Where do they come from? Let's say her name was Jill. Jill, where do they come from? How did you know right from wrong? How do you have this moral makeup in you if you don't even believe there's a God? Where'd you get it? And she said, You got a point. Seriously. Now, here's the deal, folks. You can't escape God, He's everywhere. He's in nature, He's in you. Now, He put in you His law in your conscience. He etched it there. You can't get away from it. Guilt is common to all people. Where does guilt come from? Transgressing God's law within your conscience. To those moral codes, their conscience bore witness. Look what Paul says. Indeed, when Gentiles, I love this verse. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law or the word do by nature things The law requires, they are a law for themselves, even though they don't have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts either accusing them or excusing them. God is so good, He wrote His law. In every human being. According to scripture, conscience is intended to be a goad, not a guide. The person who says, well, just let conscience be your guide, that's a fool. You know why? Because they're mistaking the function of conscience. Conscience is God's watchdog in your soul. When you do wrong, it barks. Wrong, 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 wrong. Mine's a chihuahua. <laughs> yap, 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 yap. Yep. Some of you got in your conscience a, you know, uh, uh, I don't know, um, German Shepherd, a bear, a lion. It roars when you do wrong. With me, mine just yaps at me, yaps at my heels. That's God's watchdog in your soul. When you do wrong, it barks. When you do right, it sits quietly and says nothing. Yet the conscience cannot act as a guide because it can be seared It can be blunted. It can be silenced by years of sin. For instance, Paul talked about false teachers whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. The conscience must be educated and monitored by the Word of God. If not, it can prove to be very elastic and flexible. Now, that's what I believe is happening to our culture. I believe our culture... And our culture's conscience is being desensitized by the day. And we are defining deviancy down by the day. And a society that 30 years ago would have been blown away, enraged at the thought of something like same-sex marriage. Now, if you don't go along with that, there's something wrong with you. What's happened? The conscience must be educated and monitored by the Word of God. Our conscience must be fine-tuned by the Scriptures. And if that doesn't happen, your conscience is open to anything. Some people even dispense with their conscience altogether, and they become sociopaths. They don't feel anything anymore at all. No guilt, no condemnation, no nothing. Their consciences are gone. Others, like a coat, they take it off or put it on depending on the circumstances. Walk into a bar, take it off. Walk into church, put it on. Praise the Lord, hallelujah, kumbaya at church. But then during the week, walk into a bar and throw that conscience away. Take a drink to shut it up and live like the world. we got to get out of that church. Now, Paul's point is that conscience is a light, however dim that bears witness to the fact that man lives in a moral universe and is ultimately answerable to God. Now I'm going to stop right there, and we'll finish up this, uh, this chapter the next time. Let's stand together. We've gotten a lot of information tonight. How many of you are glad that when the light shined, you ran to it? Isn't that great? Thank God. And, church, I, I, I just encourage you. Don't be ashamed of Jesus. Don't feel badly about convictions God has given you. But know this. We're in a backsliding culture that is walking away from God, running away from God by the hour. But the church needs to shine into the dark. And let's believe God for a move of God like this country has never seen. Amen? All right. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you in Jesus' name for your word. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you, Lord God, that by your mercy and grace, you plucked us out of our sin. You pulled us by your grace, beckoned to us with that light we saw in the cave of our sin. We ran towards it and encountered that glorious cross where our forgiveness came where our Savior died, and when we turned to Him, you declared us righteous, and you placed in our bank account the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Can we just lift our hands and thank God for that? I want you to thank the Lord for the righteousness of God that has been put into your spiritual bank account. You are rich. Can you say with me, I am rich. In the mercies of God. And because of his righteousness, I am spiritually wealthy. Go ahead and praise him for a minute. Just thank the Lord for his goodness and his grace. Savior, he can move the mountains. My God is mighty to say, he is mighty to say.